Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, October the 24th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Here today in studio are our political editor, Pat Leahy, and Jane Souter, the director of the Institute for Future Media and Journalism at Dublin City University. And I suppose, Jane, the first item on the agenda is the farrago of nonsense over two incredibly long hours, which was the last RTE presidential debate last night. What did you make of it? What do you make of it, Hugh? That's, <laughs> I've only just begun. <laughs> a farrago of nonsense, yeah. Um, I, I felt really guilty subjecting my poor family. Now, most of them actually didn't manage to stay in the room, but I kept the thing on nonetheless. Um, it was just dreadful, wasn't it? And uh, it was just tedious and shallow and petty and bitchy and not at all illuminating. There wasn't even any heat. There was definitely no light. I, I just thought it was ridiculous. Yeah. Right, Pat, I thought nobody, came out, of it had been, nobody came out of this well. I would have settled for all those things if, <laughs> it, if it had been entertaining yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, but but it wasn't. I, I wasn't allowed to subject um, uh, my wife to, uh, to it because uh, when I said I was putting this, uh, putting this on, she, she said she just couldn't face it. Yeah. Having followed the uh, the the election, those everybody months. in my house went to bed. She couldn't face it. My husband so snored I was it. to the other room to watch it uh, while she watched uh, "Say Yes to the Dress" or some mm-hmm. comparably uplifting uh, production. So I, I thought it was really poor. I think one of the big problems. I, I think the candidates in this election, all of them, have had poor campaigns. But I think a principal structural problem with this campaign is that there are too many candidates in it. And the councillors might think of this next time, that while they have the power to let people into the race, I think they also have a responsibility, if they're going to use that power to admit people, they also have a responsibility not to let too many people in, to to restrict the numbers of candidates to the best candidates that give us a meaningful election, to be, a meaningful to be honest, choice. Pat, even if any three of the challengers had not been there and so there was just two of them, like I don't think that it would have been like whichever three you chose to take. I don't think we I don't would think have it would have been any more illuminating. I don't think the I debate think it was would just have been poor as quality as of candidate. And, you know, honestly, what I would do is just actually take away the nomination from the county councillors. Yeah, it requires yeah. a constitutional amendment, though. Yeah. That's not going to happen. So no. yeah. when this county councillors next come to consider this, yeah. although I wonder if after the experience of this campaign and the last campaign to a lesser extent the one before that, will people be a bit more reluctant to put themselves forward? I think a lot of the, I think certainly the Dragons candidates. Yeah, but was this that not time. foreseeable? Should we all look to that? No, and no. Like, that's just Trump hubris and, and nonsense. And it was totally foretellable, I think, that 
most, if not all of them, would fail to reach the 12.5% to get their matching funding. I, I don't think it was and at all, and I'll so tell you why. Hubris. Because I think, I mean, it's constantly people were asking themselves, what makes these guys, at the beginning of the campaign, people were saying, what makes these guys look in the mirror and think, geez, I could be, I could be yeah. president. And actually, I think the thing that propelled several of them to do that, or at least some of them to do that, was that they weren't looking in the mirror and thinking, I can be president. They were looking in the mirror and th- thinking, Sean Gallagher was almost president the last time. He came within a few days and a controversy ignited by a tweet of becoming president the last time. Now, next time, you won't have that. And I think that the entering into what has been an expensive and actually for some of them kind of a humiliating race will not be as attractive a prospect for the candidates, uh, for the sort of candidates that we've seen. I mean, just back to the, the current race, I, I mean, I take the quantity point to an, to an extent that there are too many and so the quality of the debates is lowered because of that because they're not really debates not at all. Debates. Um, but there is a quality issue as well. I mean, I looked at the candidates and I would include the current incumbent in this because I didn't think he performed very well. He just managed to keep his head down most yeah. of the time. But there were a few points where that, you know, that, that high-pitched how dare you tone, you know, came, came through. In him. But the rest of them, I mean, I was talking to somebody earlier this morning and I was saying, if you or I were going for a job that we were half interested in getting, we would be better prepped for that job than most of the people I saw in that RT studio in terms of the quality of their responses to their constitutional obligations, how the mechanism well, of like, the Council of well, State she, works, the most basic stuff that you could brush up on in a day of revision. Well, and they didn't even the question about why do you want it? Do you know what I mean? Which is the basic question. The basic interview question the, you always the, get. The first question you get when you go to any class of an interview is, you know, so why do you want the job? Why should we give it to you? What are you going to do for us? None of them could even answer that. Do you know, like Joan Freeman started wittering on about going to some school in North Dublin which had wellness classes and last week. Do you know, she mustn't... What, what was she going to do before she went to a school in North Dublin last week that had wellness classes? And we know that Peter Casey's flying by the seat of his pants and that he made up a whole bunch of women who he was going to put in the council seat, including his wife, yeah. uh, um, as opposed to just whoever happened to be in the studio, which is what it was at the last debate. So yeah. we knew that. But equally, yes, the Joan Freeman response to that question, the unbelievably inarticulate Articulate uh, responses of Gavin Duffy, who was supposed to be a communications expert. What kind of a communications expert gives the kind of answers he gave last night? And uh, I mean, you're right about uh, about all of that, and that's one of the things I think will scare off candidates in future. But it, it, what I don't understand is how you know these people who are accomplished uh, in their own right, at least some of them are, can tra- can't translate that into a pitch that in which they even get the basics right. Now, perhaps it's because they're so frazzled by the campaign or so discommoded by the constant media interrogation. But the most basic research and look back at the last two presidential campaigns would have demonstrated to them that this is what happens now in a presidential campaign, especially when there is a large number of candidates. And Sean Gallagher went through it all the last time. There's obviously just some enormous amount of cognitive dissonance that just goes on. Exactly. When, when exactly. these people think this, it's yeah. just completely irrational. So I don't think, like, I think you're applying kind of rational standards that they look at something and they say, oh, well, that's going to be very difficult. I think that's what rational people do. But I think the people who end up putting their names forward for these things must have some sort of mad cognitive dissonance going on that they actually don't see this or don't expect it. And, you know, the way they were reacting last night, it was just... You looked at each of them and just went, really? It, it, I think throughout looking back at the campaign as a whole, 
you couldn't pick a single candidate that has impressed people with their ability to do the job of president or has inspired them with their vision for the job. And I include Michael D in that. Michael D, unless the polls are are dramatically, galactically wrong, yeah. will win at a canter on Friday. Yeah. But only because he has done the job to people's satisfaction over the last seven years. Exactly. He's demonstrated and he's he could do the job. fairly quiet. He hasn't demonstrated... Uh, if this were a campaign ab initio, he could he hasn't demonstrated that either. In fact, I, I, I thought he was quite poor last night. Yeah, I saw one tweet where somebody said, you know, Michael D could take a Learjet to Bogota to, you know, get Charlie every Wednesday and I'd still vote for him in the face of, you know, this kind of competition. And I think that's just it. People have seen him just kind of do the job over the last seven years and they said, look, he hasn't embarrassed us. He's been grand, you know. I saw another tweet from... Um, uh, somebody in, in Oxford who was saying, you know, I'm talking to my classes today about the different kind of um, things going on in different presidential elections. I mean, you look at the US one and the, the leading hashtag is uh, lock her up. You look at the, the Brazilian one and the leading uh, hashtag is El Now, which is, you know, not him. And you look at Ireland and the leading hashtag is keep the poet. So I think it's the you know, that Michael D is kind of trading on that kind of past thing and, you know, what and doing as little as possible, which is classic frontrunner. And, and just behavior. doing as little. Yeah. And like he's not silent. doing the debate tonight for which no. he will get. He wouldn't get away with it in a competitive election. No. As it is, you know, to put it no more strongly than this, <clears throat> cheeky in the extreme. If any of the parties had actually put up somebody who was competitive and somebody who had the possibility of winning, then he wouldn't get away with it and he would be... I mean, he might still have won, but down. they would have had something more yeah. approaching a yeah. proper contest. I think but they had, obviously if, thought if, that if, it was going to be difficult and so none of them, they, they didn't want to do it and therefore we just don't have any actual credible candidates. If you had a Fianna Fáil or a Fianna Gael candidate who was starting, by virtue of the fact that they're linked to, the, to one of the big parties, was starting on 25 are 30 like if, if Fianna Gael had, had Enda in or something, mm-hmm. but, Enda would have given but Fianna, it, you know. Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, I made this point before in print, that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are interested in power. And there is no power in the presidency. They're reasonably happy with how Michael D is doing it. Yeah. So they're not interested. Is there an issue, Jane, with your uh, future journalism hat on about the quality or the nature of the coverage of a campaign of this sort? Because, I mean, there's a couple of things about this. Obviously, as Pat has just said, there's the reality that there's n- the stakes are low and that, that impacts upon the, the, the nature of the discourse and the nature of the conversation. But there is also this kind of post-Trumpy kind of feel to the thing as well. And we know from these elections, the ones in Brazil, the ones in the United States, the ones elsewhere, that traditional media can't quite figure out sometimes how to get a handle on covering how, how those kinds of contests should be covered. Yeah, and the fact that we have kind of, um, you know, we had new colleagues starting from um, around different countries in Europe in recent weeks and they were asking about it. And like the the one thing that I, I heard somebody say, oh, well, we've got three candidates who are um, reality TV star businessmen and they and have nearly choked, you know what I mean? Like three Berlusconis or three Trumps, you know. And um, so I think that that kind of um, makes it difficult. But I think also the fact that none of them, um, with the kind of exception of Leah, but but she hasn't even really been in, in, uh, like she's an MEP, she hasn't really been in the cut and thrust of politics. And so then the, the media is kind of treating them as if they're kind of serious political candidates. And so then we just get this kind of nonsense of a thing and then, you know, chasing after uh 
Peter Casey and his stuff about travel, whereas actually, in a way, you'd be better off just ignoring him, wouldn't you? And just going, you know, what are, what are we, what are we going to do that? To, to, to describe the campaign well, report, exactly. what's going on. No, but there is, a, there, there is a question perhaps of just of, 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 of approaching the, yeah. the subject with a little less deference. And, you know, there is, yeah. a, there is a certain way that, uh, and you can speak to this better than anybody else, Pat, that, of a, that we approach political campaigns. This is a very difficult, different kind of a contest from a general election or even a local election. Should we perhaps, you know, earlier in the course of this campaign called out how how low quality some of the some of the some of the campaigns of these individuals are? Because they are, aren't they? There's well, a tendency to kind of we'll just go out and we'll write about what they say and we follow them around as they thunder up and down the street talking nonsense and handing out their leaflets. I've no problem with people making judgments at any stage of the campaign uh, about uh, about the candidates but actually I think a, an important part of the media's role is to report what they say and do let people make up their own minds on them over the course of the campaign as they get to know more about them as they're more exposed as their positions and records are interrogated. I think that is a more important so role. So the media have gone rushing them. down to Tipperary after Peter Casey? I think you have to describe what is going on in the campaign. The guy is in, he is a validly nominated candidate in a presidential election. I don't think it's a wise course for the media to go down to say, personally, we disagree with what he has said uh, about travellers, so we're not going to report on him anymore. Well, it's not not. Well, I mean, I don't know. Did we, did we have political correspondents? Did everybody? But I mean, we, the entire media, have political correspondents out on the ground with all six candidates on that day. Was there not a kind of a little um, frisson, a little frenzy around the let's all rush down to Tipperary? Yeah, but I think they're they're the, you know, they're the ebbs and flows of any uh, of any campaign. And I, I would be wary. I mean, I understand where you're coming from, but I would be wary of of us making those judgments on behalf of readers or listeners or viewers. You, you that, do have to be that careful we shouldn't let well. them see like this stuff. You know, when you listen to some of the people from the New York Times, for example, who reflected later on how they initially covered Trump and how they tried to cover Trump in the kind of the last week of the campaign, they were reflecting on, well, actually, in, in a way, they were reporting on kind of Trump's news values that he, that he was providing rather than trying to get behind at what the other stories were. So actually, I thought last night that was the one good thing is, you know, Dave McCullough obviously came out really well. Sure. And, you know, the the kind of questioning that uh, he subjected, some, sometimes he backed off fairly quickly, but, you know, it, it was obviously only David and Michael D who understood the, the Constitution. But I thought it was interesting how he managed to get to uh, Leonorida and, um, you know, what an average industrial wage actually means, you know, whether it's pre-tax or or post-tax. I thought it was interesting the way he managed to get that, you know, Peter Casey hasn't actually paid any tax in Ireland. Which I think a lot of people wouldn't have fully realised, even though they vaguely knew that he wasn't a resident yeah. of the state. Or Joan recently. Freeman, you know, is it actually 30,000 people um, who've gone through her doors when no, she, they actually treat like really well, but it's the friends and family of people as opposed to people who... Um, you know, are actually going through and, the and, and those the were all themselves. those were all excellent questions, and yeah. there were other excellent questions to the other candidates. And to be fair, I haven't seen as many of those questions over the course of no, the campaign. No, he, he the first time more I of those, those into questions. into yeah. that period than I've he, seen. He, he also, uh, I thought, now uh, I think after these or, or, or during these these events, people are tweeting, and afterwards people are commenting, and, and in, inevitably they always say 
the real star was the moderator of the thing. But actually, in this instance, I think that is certainly true. Yeah. And actually, I thought um, uh, David McCullough's uh, his his marshalling of the thing was the only thing that kept any degree of interest yeah, going. Yeah, anything in going at all. But then I thought it was also, like, I liked what you guys did in the ticket about, you know, looking at the the kind of the cultural life, what books do they read, if any. And, yeah, yeah, exactly, and all of that. So I think with these kind of candidates, it's interesting to go outside of the, you know, just reacting to what they say, to kind of try to go behind and understand who they, who they are more, like what are they actually doing with things? What sort of people are they actually? What have they been doing in the last seven years? I take your point completely, yeah. Pat, about the necessity to report and to give people information about what people are doing. But I still feel there's a kind of a lack somewhere in the media coverage of this campaign that we didn't get under the skin, the reality of, 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 of what, the, what or who these people are. I don't know about that, to be honest. I, I think, you know, if you take the opinion polls as a guide, I think people have had a fairly good interrogation uh, by by the media and last night was probably the culmination of that. I mean, David McCullough wasn't uh, coming up with all these questions himself. He was building, or, you know, he, he, he was building on the interrogation of these, uh, uh, yeah, of like these guys the that has been carried in the media. I think Alan Coyne had done some stuff in the Times and you guys are different. So there were some questions that, that had gone on but I just think it could have been kind of wider as well about, about other things. There's things in life you just can't control like the weather. The traffic, or the fact that spilled coffee seems to love white shirts. But it's all good, because there's something you'll always be able to control. Your company's finances. SAP Concur integrates all your business's expenses, travel and invoicing in one simple solution, giving you the visibility and control you need to drive your business forward. SAP Concur. It's how the best-run businesses make their expenses run better. Learn more at concur.co.uk slash control. Let's look ahead to Friday. Um, I think... uh it's not a very exciting horse race. Michael D. Higgins will be the president of Ireland, um, barring absolute catastrophes. Uh, um, no for, for the next for the next seven years, I suppose there are some mathematical things that might be of interest here, Pat. Uh, if he fails to be elected on the first count at this stage, given his numbers in the polls, that will probably be seen as a failure. Or well, a quali- uh, I'm not sure it'll a be seen as a, a failure. I think it, you know, given his his numbers in the polls, given his um, the difficult, I think, last week or ten days he's had on the questions of the use of the jet, which is maybe a trivial enough incident of himself, but is a way into a whole kind of theme of extravagance in the uh, uh, in the in the Oris and is that is that is that theme actually justified in any way? I think it's perfectly justified. I mean, is, is there is there is there is there extravagance? But it also, but it also. But I'm wondering, is there extravagance in the hours? I wouldn't have thought. Like, I, if well, you look I, at Michael yeah, D's I, long record, I don't think he's somebody who is kind of you know reveling in the in the. That's in absolutely the, the case. In, in the kind of the until bomb. until un, until now when he's sports. president and he has and, yeah. the facilities at his disposal. I mean, I, I, I no, think using a Learjet to go to Belfast. No, just to use it to go to Belfast. The Three thousand euros a night suite. Uh, actually, I think that is pretty extravagant. Actually, okay. So you think that there is a legitimate charge of over extravagance in Michael D's presidency? I think there are right incidences. I think there are incidences which have been spelled out, which reasonably fit that definition. I do. I don't say because I don't have the evidence that there is a wide, uh, a widespread pattern of this in the arts because we don't have any 
transparency on the level well, we of spending should, and on what yeah, yeah. and that you know and, and, and nor does Michael C, Michael D seem disposed to give it I mean he says that he will uh, he, he will lay out all the details of his spending after the election well thanks very much but actually I think it would be better if he had done that before the- and is there not an element does that not tie into an element and some people have remarked about it. I'm looking at Peter Crawley who is our TV reviewer and he says that at times uh, last night Michael D made any criticism against him seem like a gross slur to his entire lifetime in public office and there is a sense that he draws himself up to his full, full height such as it is and the voice gets a bit squeaky <laughs> yeah. and he starts talking about his authenticity and how, how material things don't matter to him and, and there's I a touch of he protesteth too much about yeah, that. I, th- I think, yeah, I think that probably broadly it's true. I think if you look at like his history going back over in in the kind of uh, public sphere, going back over probably almost fifty years, certainly longer than I can remember, this is probably true. But I think you know he does sound a bit squeaky. I think you know he obviously this thing should be subject to FOI. Um, he should obviously be releasing the details of the expenditure. I don't imagine he's giving, um, like he's telling his civil servants to please book me the Learjet to Belfast. But I doubt that he's actually there demanding trips like that. Or I doubt he's saying, no, but please book me into a three grand a night slightly hotel. thin. No, Somebody's gone to a travel agent or something and the travel agent has come back with this hotel. There's, you know, so there probably isn't enough attention paid to it as opposed to a deliberate thing of let's spend too much money, I'd have thought. I think there's something slightly thin about Michael D's defence of being, I mean, I have no idea what's going on. I simply turn up to give my to give my speeches. My understanding of what goes on in the Oris is that it's a pretty tight political operation. Michael D is uh, very much in touch with the details of what is happening and what's, what's going to happen. Now, I, you know, I'm, I'm not making a huge thing of the, the three grand a night hotel. But I, I think that I think that he is in uh, a position where perhaps previously Michael D might have gone, hold on a minute, is that not a bit extravagant? Of the other candidates, if we're looking ahead to what we're likely to be rumbling on about. On yeah, this is where we started talking about. I think the other interesting thing will be how Peter Casey does. And what's your and what's your what's your benchmark for success failure? Or well, I suppose there? you know better than two percent, which he was registering at uh, in 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 the polls last week. I think it will be instructive, you know, on the question of public attitudes to travellers and that. I mean, he is. Well, I don't ident- think it's he's just to travellers. I think it's a kind of like one of the remarkable things about um, about Ireland and the and the party system and the media system and everything um, over the last number of years is the extent to which there's. Um, an absence of uh, kind of populism and especially anti-out-group populism. And if you look at the uh, British media system or you look at the British political discourse, even the Dutch, the Italian, lots of French, these things are there. And uh, like we've done studies where we've shown that the, the Irish media, it just doesn't actually give space to that kind of populist which is not to say, Which is not to say that the discourse. views, which is not to say that the views that those... Uh, populist politicians are appealing to don't exist in Ireland. No, well, what what we found is we've looked at it and there's definitely a section of voters who have these attitudes against immigrants, against people coming in, against refugees, against travellers and so on. So there's almost as many of them in Ireland as there are in some other European countries. But there's no actual political party which has given voice to this. 
And so that's held in check because the media then hasn't been reporting it. So now this is the first time that this kind of thing has been breached. And then the media has gone after the story because, as Pat says, they have to report what somebody said. But now the kind of it'll be interesting to see to what extent the kind of the the dam has burst. Do you know what I mean? The, I, think, the, I think it will be quite interesting. Other, if Peter Casey does very yeah. well, it tells us something. And other parties politics. or independents or politicians are likely to go yes. down that populist, anti-outgroup, racist, xenophobic kind of route. And so far they haven't. And we've been kind of saved from that kind of uh, uh, political discourse. So it'll just be... That that would be would be my concern. Would be that this could just be the kind of the prick and the dam that that could kind of. What does very well mean I, in this instance? I ten percent, ten percent, ten percent, ten percent, fifteen percent, maybe. Uh, I, I think if he does, I mean, he was doing so badly in the polls until he started talking about these sort of issues, particularly the traveller one, which is something that will resonate with a lot of voters. I think the question is whether it resonates with them sufficiently to influence their voting behaviour in this election. That's the really interesting thing. And if that does, to a significant significant extent, which alters completely the profile of his candidacy and the political success of it, then I think that tells us something about our politics. A friend of mine was relating a story. He was in a cafe in Cork over the weekend and the two... Uh, buckos on the table beside him were discussing the uh, the presidential election and he uh, he discreetly tuned into it. And one says to the other, you know, I think we should send Peter Casey up to Dublin to drain the swamp. <laughs> Isn't it true? Think, you know, it's kind of indicative of, of, mm. of I, those sort of currents that he is attempting to ride. And whatever... Strength wh- of them... Whatever about well, him going up to drain the swamp in the, yeah. in, the, in the Phoenix Park, isn't it true that all these movements start, first of all, as, as kind of pure protest movements and then as they grow, they often, you know, they've, they've achieved power in several countries at, at this point. So a kind of effect that a lot of them vote could very easily go to Peter Casey because, you know, most people perceive that the stakes are pretty low here anyway, that Michael D. Higgins is almost certainly going to win for a job which doesn't have very much power. Mm-hmm. So, perfect opportunity for the protest candidates. If you look at the way people vote in, in, in second order elections, like European European elections, they feel slightly freer to uh, they feel slightly freer in their preferences in, yeah. in those elections. But if he comes in at kind of five percent or something, then that will demonstrate that actually the Irish people, why there are people who have these anti-traveller attitudes or anti-other minority attitudes and, and this kind of thing, that in fact it's not a kind of a first order thing that drives their preferences. Does your research show yeah. uh, what parties those in, those people tend to vote for right now? Yeah, so they tend mostly to vote for independence and after that there um, there's quite a few vote for Sinn Féin and then Sinn Féin obviously doesn't give voice to this so that kind of contains it. And then uh, the next kind of party would be Fianna Fáil and Fianna Fáil also doesn't give voice to this. So as a, as a result, these voters vote on, while they have these attitudes, it's not what drives their voting decision. So that's what will be interesting about the kind of Peter Casey thing is whether the people who have these attitudes, and we know they exist, whether it's going to be enough to drive their voting decision in the presidential election or not. So if his vote is held back, then we can, you know, be kind of reassured that while the attitudes exist, they're not the primary thing driving somebody's vote. But if his numbers go up a lot, then there's going to be competition 
from people who are going to start with things like drain the swamp and kind of Trumpian rhetoric and and so on against not just travellers but other minorities and multiculturalism and progressive and and so on, which at the moment doesn't actually have doesn't have a political expression. It doesn't have political expression at the moment. Um, let me ask you about Sinn Fein, Pat. Leonie Rita's performance, some good and some bad, I would have thought. Um, last night on it. She very much stuck to a line which we heard from um, Mary Lou MacDonald earlier this week in this studio um, targeting Michael D. Higgins on a couple of particular points. They have the, the, the Sinn Féin have a line which is Michael D. Higgins should have gone to address the Joint House of the Oireachtas during the times of austerity. It's an implicit criticism of L- Michael D. Higgins as a Labour Party mm-hmm. candidate and of, obviously Sinn Féin have profited from the decline of Labour over the years. So it's an attempt to return to that. And then Mary Lou Macdonald was saying on, on, on Monday essentially that a relatively unambitious target as I interpreted it of getting out the Sinn Féin base which to me says getting over the 12.5% uh, number which would allow them to get their expenses paid. Yeah, I don't think it's been a good campaign for uh, for Sinn Féin. I thought Leonie Reid is clearly an articulate, intelligent person but hasn't had a particularly good campaign. She was badly caught, I thought, on the, the question of her salary last night, how much she keeps, how much she gives. Can, to I, ask you, can I ask you just about that? I mean, could, could that same, could other Sinn Féin public representatives be caught in the same way? Have they made this claim over the years and it's slipped in terms of the reality of what people do in terms of these salaries? Do I simply, I, 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 I simply do don't know the um, uh, as to what each of them take home. I know individuals have. I remember one individual showing me his payslip or uh, his his bank account and the the uh, portion of his salary which goes into that and the balance then going to which is the average industrial wage and the balance then going to um, going to his local organisation. Now, how they use whether the money goes to him. Or whether it goes to local organisations, all the same from the taxpayer's she, point of view, I would have thought. But, but she was badly caught in it last she night. She also said she had a different account also for expenses. And I thought, wow, I'd never actually heard... MEPs get four grand a year. No, no, but... Yeah. yeah, but those... So, but that's going into a different account. So you can say you've got one account for your salary and then another account that was paying in your insurance office. and yes. car and... There, These kinds there's of there's both the office expenses and then there's attendance and then there's expenses also. Travel and different ones. So I just think it's probably opened up uh, an opportunity for Pat and his colleagues to ask more questions and find out. Well, indeed, what, because what if the claim is being made, it's, it would on. be good perhaps to interrogate it. If, you, you could quite imagine a situation where this was in the Sinn Féin of 15 or 20 years ago. This was a form of party discipline which was imposed across the line and maybe who knows what went on under the hood in well, there was the Sinn Féin in the old days. Party, uh, in, the, in the party recently, in the party admitted that actually it had no power. You know, it was, you know, there was bespoke arrangements with people, uh, you know, to uh, as to how much of their salary they kept. But if people are publicly claiming in the and media, actually, as Leonie Rita did one thing and it turns out to be another thing. Yeah, that's a that is. Yeah, it's not a, it's 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 not a great development for the party. More broadly, though, I think Leonie Rita's message in the campaign has been about a united Ireland. That just hasn't really flown with voters from what I can say. It's not even getting Sinn Féin's core uh, core voters. She was at 11%, I think, in our poll last week. Uh, Sinn Féin 
got 14% in the last general election. They were at 24% in our uh, in our opinion poll last week in terms of how people would vote in a general election. So that United Ireland message, which is often what Sinn Féin defaults to when it's under pressure or has nothing, you know, is... is uh, as a sort of a kind of rhetorical comfort blanket, if you like, it just has not resonated with people. It hasn't. Uh, it hasn't flown. But I'm I'm uh, I'm interested by why that was chosen as the message, Jane. I mean, there's a couple of things. One is the general interpretation of why Sinn Fein, alone among the major parties in Ireland, chose to have a have a candidate in this election was it was a sort of a further introduction of the new Mary Lou Sinn Fein to the to the electorate in the in 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 this state, and that her face would be on the bus, on the ads, and the leaflets yeah. side by side, the younger female female Sinn Fein. Why go for this message, particularly since, as we know, there was a bit of a kerfuffle, although she she denied this the other day in, the, in this in this studio, over whether to push for a border poll. Uh, and it seemed at the time as if the border poll was imposed upon this new leadership by the old leadership, that any, any uh, backsliding on the need for a border poll was kind of turned down by the northern leadership. It seems like a sort of a confused kind of a message. It seems a confused and message. And, and I wonder, was it something to do with the fact that they thought that a lot of this was going to play out while Brexit was very much in play? And, you know, so they thought that this might kind of it might be in the firmament anyway and therefore might kind of take it's off. Also, it, and, it, and that just didn't work. It just, as Pat says, it just didn't happen. It's also kind of a shinner two-step, I think, which is the candidate is one part of the message and the candidate is young, southern, only joined Sinn Féin relatively recently, is, you know, a clean skin, uh, has no association with the IRA or anything like that, very far from it. That's the candidate. That's one part of the message. But the other part of the message is United Ireland, keep the faith, old time religion stuff. And that is, I think Mary Lou has done a bit of that. Now, in, with regard to the, the, the United Ireland referendum that she was calling for, we, we, we're not certain, we've discussed this in the studio before, we're not certain why Mary Lou did a U-turn on that. But what is indisputable is that she did do a U-turn. One day she said... This wasn't the time to have a hard Brexit was not the time to have a United Ireland poll. And the following day, she said, it's precisely the time to have uh, a United Ireland poll. So why she did that, we don't know. The supposition is that she was leaned on by the boys of the old brigade. I, I, I don't know if that's true, uh, but it, it seems to me to it's an explanation that fits what happened anyway perhaps there are other explanations as well uh, but this being Sinn Féin it's very difficult to see inside We should refer to the fact as well and this um, this podcast is probably as remiss as the rest of the media and paying virtually no attention to the fact that there is also a referendum on Friday mm. um, another kind of farago of absurdity it seems to me to, to, to some extent Um You've been involved in the Constitutional Convention. There are all kinds of interesting proposals there, some of which are, you know, would be quite significant changes to the to the Constitution. This, whatever its merits, is not one of those. No, well, I think the thing was that the... Well, I think it's part of the plan of, you know, the kind of... the, the religious kind of secular thing. It was something... It's not something that's contentious, even all the churches back it. So it should be something that would go through easily would be the the idea. Um, and actually, as part of that, when I was, I was coming here, the taxi driver said to me, oh, yeah, it's a nonsense. I'll have to I'll have to vote uh, no to to make sure it's gone. 
And I was going, no, 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 like it's about yes to, to, to get rid of it. So I'm not even sure even with the kind of turnout problems, I think people might even vote in the wrong direction. Because it could be quite confusing because what I know, the ballot paper will have this legal gobbledygook, legal gobbledygook and, and, but, and you're just invited to vote yes or no. And yeah, and people don't, and there's no posters up this time, of course, because it, it's not contentious. So I think it was meant... Anything was, could happen in this. It could, it could go either way because people haven't a clue what they're doing. And um, then on the, which actually shows the shortcoming of the of the government not being allowed to to campaign and that and that kind of uh, Supreme Court ruling and in these kind of well, the government is campaigning. It's just not doing so very. It's, well, it's not allowed to spend money, so th- so they're not allowed to. Uh, they oh, can't spend government money have been on. Out and but, they've been campaigning. Yeah, you know. but they can't spend money on putting up. Posters, one side or yeah, the well, other. Fine Gael could do so. Fine Gael could do so. Spending money on posters for Michael D. Yeah. So and um, so it could go either way. And but I think the thing is, it was supposed to be run with the with the referendum on getting rid of the clause about uh, women in the home. But the Constitution Convention um, had actually said that they wanted to replace that with carers in the home. The government didn't want to replace it with carers. They wanted to to just repeal it perhaps because of worries that if you actually put in a new provision about carers, that, that there might be uh, fiscal implications. There are new constitutional rights that could have all kinds of... It could have all kinds of uh, repercussions. And so the National Women's Council and other people who you would expect to be in favour of uh, ridding the constitution of the clause about women in the home were then not very keen to support it because it was just being repealed and, and not replaced. So now the whole thing is being yes, an, kicked an, an back for, committee for another... They said they wanted to do pre-legislative scrutiny, scrutiny on the all. bill, so that's... So, sure. so now it's pushed out, so that's left blasphemy on... And on was, the there not, was there not yeah. a similar type of an argument at the convention around blasphemy about whether it should be just removed or whether it should be replaced by some new provision about incitement to hatred? There was, but then there was the, the then the, a lot beliefs. of the constitutional lawyers pointed out that in fact we have um, other acts which cater for incitement to hatred. We're not reliant on the constitutional provision of blasphemy in order to stop um, incitement to hatred or anything about any other groups. In fact, even the Defamation Act of 2009 will remain on the statute, which will actually still keep blasphemy as a crime, um, even if we get rid of blasphemy in the constitution until it's changed. So very little will actually change on the ground unless and until that uh, legislation is changed. If we're going to have a continuous process of of reinterrogating bit by bit, tiny bit by tiny bit, eating this very large cake and tiny bites, we're going to have these endless non-debate debates around Well, we should have an electoral commission that actually manages these things properly. And then there's an interesting thing that they do in Oregon called the Oregon Citizen Initiative. So after a process like the Constitution Convention, they'd actually come up with the things, here's the pros, here's the cons. So vote no to remove it, vote yes to do this. This is given to everybody. There's posters up so people understand it. So, you know, an electoral commission, if we had one, could actually go further than the referendum commission, which it which is ad hoc and is very tightly prescribed um, in terms of... kind of a pointless point. Yeah, in terms of what what it can say. And to actually bring out the arguments so people would understand this is what a no vote is for, this is what a yes vote is for. Because it's it's all very well, like in a a highly contested one, like our previous ones, there's enough people on both sides, there's enough people with sort of... uh, something in the game that they're going to put up posters and people are going to understand. But when you've got a less contentious one and it's all about just tidying up our constitution, making it fit for the 21st century, then people don't understand. So people don't even know what blasphemy is. 
people don't know was in the Constitutional Convention. People don't know that 60% of the Convention, but still there was 39% of people in the Convention who thought the other thing, that thought we should retain, um, you know, protections that religion is sacred and that we need to keep those protections on the book, that uh, this is very important in a multicultural society. You know, it's not just about protecting a, a Christian God, it's also about protecting a you know, a Muslim God. Well, there's also and, an argument and, that you could do all that in legislation and, well, and you exactly, should be perhaps yeah. a little bit, you know, you know, temper your ambitions when it comes to the Constitution. There should be more fundamental things. Yeah. We are going to have to leave it there because we've got Only time to flag next week's podcast, which is assuming the passage of the referendum, which is our top 10 blasphemies, which we've been straining to get out. But Yeah, but you've got some particularly juicy ones. I'm looking forward to hearing them next week. Pat, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks also to Jane. That's it for today's podcast. Thanks very much to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. You can listen to us on iTunes and sign up for us and share us with other listeners. Or you can go to irishtimes.com slash podcast. You can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks very much for listening. 